Hello and welcome to Tea with Coco, the European American. I am Coco like Chanel. And today I'm going to be talking about a subject I'm sure you've seen in your news feeds. It's popping up all over, and it's one of the most natural things that Europeans do and that in general people do. It's fasting. Now, I know a lot of you have heard about this and heard maybe the term intermittent fasting. We'll be talking a lot about fasting, intermittent fasting, cultural representations and religious representations, as well as I'll share my own experience with it. So without any further ado, please enjoy Tea with Coco. It's always seemed like this magical secret that everyone has been hiding. Books have been written about this, uh, why French women don't get fat, European diet, eat like a French woman. If you actually type in the word French woman into Google, the first couple of things that pop up are dress like and eat like. And I wanted to break down a little bit of this secrecy surrounding it. And I think part of the reason that it seems so elusive is that it is completely subconscious. It's not something that they generally think about. It's not eating a certain type of food. It's a behavior. It is a natural way of existing. And the interesting thing I want everyone to walk away with is this is actually something that everyone does in some form with with themselves to find balance. So overindulging and then fasting, and we're going to use those terminologies just to be cohesive, but think about it in terms of other habits you may have. If you work out really hard and you're sore the next day, you can't work out that hard again until your body heals because you're sore. It's, it's the body's way of telling us that. For a less healthy example, if you drink way too much wine with a friend or a lover or by yourself and wake up the next morning with a headache that makes you wish you were 22 again, you're not going to go and drink a bottle of wine that day or you're going to be miserable if you do. It's, it's your natural state to abstain from those things in which you've overindulged until you're back to your status quo. So it's interesting that Americans, and I think people in general, really understand this concept for everything else other than food. I think it goes back to this very American concept of you have to finish everything. I have definitely heard phrases like, there are starving children in Africa. And that's a very interesting distinction to bring up because there is a huge crowbar separation difference between starving and fasting. So I, I want to make sure we're using our terminology correctly. Fasting is when you abstain from eating or consuming any calories for a certain period of time. And I say calories, but that could also be inclusive of non-calorie sweetened or things like aspartame that's in Diet Coke or chewing gum, and, and we'll get to that in a minute. But it's, it's really abstaining from putting anything into your body other than water. So that is the definition we will be working with. And it actually is something that we are aware of, just maybe not consciously. If you even think about the term breakfast in English, 
breakfast break fast. You're breaking the fast. That is actually what the word means. And I'm sure there are some of you out there that are slapping their hands against their head. Like, how did you not realize that? But it's just these very small uh, clues that we have in our language, in our history, in our shared history as, as the human race. Because it seems very obvious to me, and there's so much documentation around this, that humans could not have existed if we weren't able to fast. It's part of our history as a species. This idea of feast and famine in periods of overwhelming abundance, followed by periods where there was fasting. And the European cultures are very set up for this. Oktoberfest is obviously the first one that comes to mind for me, having lived so many years in Germany. But it was the, the harvest festival, right? So it was an abundance of food. And part of the reason that was such a rich celebration is because you would then enter the winter months when there wasn't as much food, when you weren't harvesting, right? You know, before spring and the whole cycle started over again. Now, when we've kind of evolved past this idea of hunter-gatherer, sower, uh, waiting for the harvest to reap, that's not the reality for most of us. So where does this cultural importance of fasting fit in? Well, for the Europeans, it's exactly the scenario that we were mentioning earlier. There is no, quote, dieting really in Europe. I'm, I mean, I'm sure people are and, and there are things that they don't eat, but in general, there's no low-fat, fat-free. We've talked about this a little bit. It just doesn't exist. That concept that you would want something like, I can't believe it's not butter, they would laugh in your face. Butter is wonderful and don't mess with it. That That's basically their thoughts on the matter. And so... If they're going to indulge in these fantastic rituals of eating that include rich foods such as butters and cheeses and and pastas and all of the things that truthfully make life worth living, let's let's be fair, and wine and beer and, and all of the festivities, then there has to be a different swing of the pendulum to balance it out. And so I, one of the books that talks about this, the... French ideology around fasting makes a very small mention of this. And what they say in the book is the American is looking at the French woman who just ate six course meal and she turns to them and said, oh, I ate so much. I'll eat like a bird for the next week. And that it's, a, they don't actually use the word fasting because I think there's a lot of fear around it. But that idea of feast and famine, of abstaining and indulging, is part of the makeup of European culture. And I think it's going to become part of the makeup of American culture as we become more and more aware of this and don't have as much fear associated with the word. So, let's get into a little bit of the specifics. And I, I won't get too scientific on you guys, but I wanted to explain a little bit how this works for the European culture and how they're able to have over the millennia, how humans really have able have been able over the millennia to remain slender and slim while not giving up one pound of butter. So 
let's get into a little bit. Dr. Jason Fung is an amazing author and doctor. He's worked with a lot of patients, mostly that have diabetes, for 20-some years. He wrote a fantastic book called The Obesity Code. If you haven't read it, it's on Audible. Please pick it up. A wonderful read. Fascinating chronologically of all diets that have ever existed throughout human history, from the first pamphlets about human consumption of food in the 1800s all the way up to a lot of the fast fixed diets that we talk about today. It's fascinating. He used a wonderful analogy to explain this concept of how fasting and intermittent fasting works. And he compared the human body to an AC unit at home, to an air conditioning unit. You always have a temperature set on your unit. And if you open a window, the AC would kick on to try and help maintain that temperature. Your body has a similar set weight. That's why it's super easy for us to maintain our weight, right? We don't have to constantly think about dieting every day or what we're eating every day to maintain our weight. But it's very difficult to lose. And that's because your body has that thermometer in it, has that set weight, and it wants to maintain that weight. And mostly, that is a defense mechanism for periods of fasting. That your body has a defense mechanism over not being able to find sustenance for a while without having to resort to eating muscle or tissue. And so this set weight can be very easy to break. It can be difficult to lose weight. You're fighting a really hard battle against yourself. So I, I think about this now sometimes when I see, you know, these images on Instagram of these supermodel women eating cheeseburgers or ice cream cones as big as their head. And you wonder to yourself, how are they able to do that? I could eat two beans on a leaf and I'm, you know, blow up like a watermelon. Well, it's because that's what their body set weight is set at. And I'm sure genetics play into it. Um, There has to be a part that is genetically predisposed, but an entire culture cannot have identical genetics. And a large part of our culture here in the U.S. is made up of those cultures, which are currently using some of these very ancient ideas about fasting. So why isn't it popular here in the U.S.? I was watching a documentary called The Science of Fasting, which is fantastic. It's on Amazon Prime if anyone is interested, um, Amazon Prime Now video. And the simple fact is that fasting is free. You actually don't have to buy anything for it. There's nothing that you have to prepare other than water, maybe, uh, for you to participate in fasting. There's no magic pill. And one of the doctors in the documentary actually quipped that if there was a pill that did as much for your health as fasting, that there would be one in every cabinet across the, across the globe, especially in the United States, and that uh, there would be billionaires many times over in the medical community uh, for developing this type of pill. And they talk a lot more in that documentary about fasting as a cure for other ailments, which I won't get into, but uh, specifically for weight maintenance, it's something that just makes sense and something that we know our species was built to do. 
even the religions of all of our different cultures participate in some sort of fasting ritual, most of them, from Lent with Christianity and Catholicism to Ramadan with religion of Islam and Muslims. And every culture has some sort of setup for this. So I don't know how Americans didn't get the memo, but it's hopefully blinking across their screens right now. So I will get into a little bit about how it works because it can seem scary and it can seem daunting. The first couple of times I did prolonged fast, which I'll talk about in a moment, I got a lot of side eye looks from people. And that's why it was important to me to make the distinction early on between fasting and starvation, because I do think that those are real issues in the world. Anorexia is a real issue. Eating disorders are a real issue. Starvation and food shortages are a real issue. So medical disclaimer right here at the beginning on the onset, I am not a medical professional. I just wanted to share my personal experience with this practice of fasting and intermittent fasting, as well as my observations from living in a culture that uses this on a daily routine basis to help maintain their lifestyle. And I will try to do my part in that by sharing my experience with it. When I was first hearing this term and, and thinking about growing up in Europe and witnessing this as a cultural habit and a cultural norm, I really was striving to try and find information on people's experience with this uh, in a more structured way. And it was very difficult for me to do that. So that's one of the reasons I wanted to provide that. And so I'll be talking through my experience, my daily routines, and what I have found that makes me feel good. So here we go. I'll start with intermittent fasting. This is definitely the most popular kind of fasting. Uh, everybody um, from Dwayne Johnson, The Rock, to supermodels use this concept. And most of them use what's called the 18-6. So that means that you fast for 18 hours and you consume your food in a six-hour period. Basically, if you and sleeping is included. Basically, if you skip breakfast and have a late lunch and eat an early dinner within a six-hour period, there it is. And what that does, according to the books I've read and how I've felt, is not spike your blood sugar. Anytime you eat, spikes your blood sugar, creates insulin. You guys can fill in the blanks from there. So you're, you're maintaining that throughout the day. I have exercised completely normally. 18.6 is really what I do on a daily basis now. It's actually what most French people do in general. If they do eat breakfast, which a lot of them don't, but if they do, it's like a small roll or piece of bread with a coffee. Um, some, most of the time, just coffee, which is fine. And they, they really don't have a big breakfast culture. In Germany, it's very small breakfast, but a piece of meat or cheese, like deli meat or cheese, and a, maybe a small piece of bread or musul, which is a, a non-sugared granola, like oats and seeds. Very small amount, but it's not a huge breakfast culture. 
And so most of them do eat a large late lunch. And that's, again, a whole affair. There's another article about eating at the table and, and culture, uh, culturally significance of that. So please enjoy that stuff. But usually they have a, a very leisurely lunch and dinner. So again, it's just naturally part of their culture. That's how they exist. If you guys have never tried it before, there is a great app called Zero. And it times your fast, maps your progress, and has links to some really great content, um, videos on YouTube, etc. to explain a little bit more. Uh, the next type of fasting is called OMAD. And this is, means one meal a day. OMAD. O-M-A-D. One meal a day. And that is a 24-hour fast, usually dinner to dinner, but it could be breakfast to breakfast, whatever works for you in your schedule, and obviously there could be opposing days. That is becoming more and more popular as well. A lot of people are combining this idea of OMAD with a keto or keto diet, which is a fat and protein-based, low-carb diet. And we could do a whole nother podcast on there, and I I might. I have some wonderful people um, to talk to about keto, but it's it's that concept. And Dr. Jason Fung that I mentioned earlier, he actually says this is how he generally exists for a daily basis in OMAD. For me, I like to work out in the afternoon, and so I usually want something right after that, and then I my main meal is, is dinner, um, which I try to eat early. The last one is probably the most controversial, and that's called prolonged fasting. So prolonged fasting is anything over 24 hours. If you do a two or three or however long fast, uh, day fast, that would be categorized as prolonged fasting. And this is where the medical disclaimer I said earlier really comes into play because skipping a meal, I think we can agree for a majority of the population that's not an issue. Shouldn't be anyway. (laughs) But prolonged fasting is a lot of times where you get the eyebrow raise and the similes with starvation. And that's what I want to spend the last bit of this time talking about. So I'm currently doing a prolonged fast. I am fasting for 10 days. I do this about three times a year. Every four months or so, I do a prolonged fast. And I do it as a reset. I do it because I feel usually like the time has come. I've kind of been indulging with life. Um, Sometimes there are a lot of events close together, um, bachelorette parties, birthday parties, weddings, celebrations, trips, vacations. I travel for work a lot. Um, So, you know, with that, there can definitely be kind of that disruption of your norm. So I, I listen to my body and we've all been able to communicate with our bodies for as long as we've been alive and you know when you're feeling bloated or puffy or lethargic you you understand that and we have visual representations and cues as well from how our hair skin and nails feel um, to how our stomachs feel when we eat something 
we know when we're hungry and we know when we're not. And that is something that being in tune with is a very natural and healthy feeling. So when I get to a point where I feel like I've had a really good time indulging for, for a while, um, and this usually, like I said, happens three times a year, I do a 10-day fast. And I start by doing um, one day of OMAD, one, one meal a day, um, and I usually just have a really high-protein meal, um, fish or, or meat if you eat meat, um, and then I start my fast after that. And I don't eat any food for 10 days. And at the end of the 10 days, which is at dinner again, because dinner was my last meal, I usually start with a day or two of soups, blended soups, uh, to reacclimate my body um, to you know consuming something other than liquid. Now, during my prolonged fast, I do have coffee and tea and water with lemon juice and sometimes water with grapefruit juice because I like the, the tartness or lime. I also have, during my 10-day fast, had a glass of dry red wine. It has never bothered me. You definitely don't want to have more than a glass or so because you haven't eaten, and so it will go to your head a lot faster. Um, And obviously, make sure you're hydrating, which you should be because you're only consuming water. But that has been my experience. I know other people have had other experiences, and... I wanted to talk through a little bit of the pitfalls because I don't want everyone to walk away with thinking like, oh, this is really, really easy. But it does get easier as you get used to it. The first time I did a prolonged fast, it was very difficult. And it was very difficult on day two. On day one, you kind of have this energy and this vigor around it and are excited about the prospect. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this fasting. And it can kind of get you through that first day. By dinner time on the first day and well into the second day, it can be very difficult because the hormone called ghrelin, which is what lets us know that we it's time to eat that we're hungry, is going crazy. And it's pushing out a lot trying to get you to eat. The most important thing is to prepare and stay hydrated. The first time I did a prolonged fast, I made a big pot of chicken broth homemade from a chicken that Charles and I, my husband and I had bought and um, put salt and you know vegetables in it. Missing the salt is a lot of, of what we're craving. Um, because we consume so much salt in our food that when you're not consuming food, your buoyancy, your body's natural state with salt can sometimes be off. So if you're a vegetarian or vegan, some veg- vegetable stock with salt in it, or if you are omnivorous, you can uh, make the chicken stock, which has a lot of great nutrients from the bones um, of the chicken as well. So that's what I did the first time. And when I was dying on the second day, I had some chicken stock and it made me feel like I was eating something. The, the smell, the ritual, very important to help you get through that first time. Now I don't have to do that. Uh, now I, 
I can go and I kind of know what to expect with my body. I know what the reactions are. I know how to get around them. And my body is also adapted to the idea of fasting. So I don't do that now, but the first couple of times I really did. And uh, it really helped me get through. You just want something that's going to make you feel satiated. And that definitely does the trick. Now, after day three, you actually do start to feel some of those euphoric effects that I read about and thought was complete bullshit at the time. Like, yeah, right. No way. So if you're doing three days or longer of a fast, just know that after day three, it really does get easier. Your body has adapted to this state. You will start to see some of those calming and euphoric effects on your body. And that's when I started being able to really exercise with rigor again. While I was fasting, I did yoga, spin class, Zumba, and ran with the dog, went on walks, hikes, and felt completely fine and actually more energized, which if you think about it, makes sense because when you eat food, it actually makes you feel lethargic tired. I I mean, Thanksgiving is one of my favorite holidays and because it's really focused around food. And after you eat a big meal, you want to go and take a nap. You want to sit on the couch. You want to lie down. You're not jumping up to go out and exercise. So this ebb and flow that your body has and the mentality that we have around how our food fuels us, how we get energy and how our body works might be misdirected in, in that aspect of it. So it was an interesting rewiring of my brain and also a very interesting retrospective for me on, for my daily routine moving forward, how I wanted to exist and what my cravings were and how to deal with those. You know, one of the biggest takeaways after doing this prolonged fast is after the first couple of days, I didn't miss eating. It wasn't food itself that I missed, but you guys know from reading the blog or from my previous podcast that I love cooking. I love everything about creating a meal from discussing it with my husband or family and friends to sharing recipes and looking for recipes to going to the grocery store and talking to all of the merchants about what looks good and what should I cook and how would they prepare it to the complete preparation process of the meal. I love it all. I really do love every single part of that experience. So I spent a lot of time in lament that I kind of didn't have anything to do for that portion of my day that is usually taken up by grocery shopping, which you guys know I do every day or almost every day and and preparing the meal. And I didn't have that ritual of sitting down with my husband and um, sharing something together. So that was a, a really big takeaway for me is that it wasn't that I missed eating. It's that I missed the ritual of, of sharing uh, an experience with my husband or with family and friends. So if you're thinking of doing a prolonged fast, um, please consult who you need to consult or who you feel comfortable um, you know, talking to these uh, about these things with. And... We would love to hear comments if you guys have tried, if you're thinking about it, if you're concerned about prolonged fasting or intermittent fasting. There's tons of content out there available, some of it good, some of it not. And I know it's hard to kind of sift through and figure out what is good and what is not. But 
These are my observations from both my experience and from living in Europe. And I, I think it's just logical. It makes sense. It balances the equation for me in a way that no other diet ever has. So I am very excited to share my thoughts on this with you and to hear some of yours in return. As always, before we go, I wanted to end with a little land yap, a little something extra. And I thought this time it could be a recipe for one of the get-throughs that helps me with my intermittent fasting. And it's my morning drink. Every day I get up during the fast and I have two tablespoons of apple cider vinegar, two tablespoons of lemon juice, a little bit of cinnamon, and I mix that with water and sometimes turmeric, depending on my mood, and I drink the entire glass, usually about 10 to 12 ounce glass uh, mixed in. And it really does, drinking that full glass of water in the morning with those flavors in it, not only helps balance your blood sugar like apple cider vinegar is known to do, and alkalize you like lemon juice is known to do, but it is that wonderful ritual that we sometimes miss while fasting of preparing something and being able to consume it. So I wanted to share that with you. I will put the recipe up on the blog so that you guys can have a look at it. And I hope everyone has enjoyed this episode of the European American Tea with Coco with Coco like Chanel. Until next time, everyone, laissez le bon temps rouler and have a great day. Thank you.